the Cory Doctorow podcast. I may sound a little different this week because I am at a sporting competition for my daughter in which we are all required to sit in our cars until our kid is competing and then we get to go out and watch them and then we have to get back in our car until the uh, tournament is over. So I brought my laptop and my microphone and I am sitting in the car outside of Los Angeles in Simi Valley, looking out at a highway, struggling with poor Wi-Fi and recording for you. That's how much I value your attention. No, seriously. But I'm going to make it quick this week because of the awkward circumstances. I am heading to San Francisco in person for my first in-person event since 2020, March 2020, the Internet Archive's 25th birthday. I'm doing the keynote. It's called From Way Back to Way Forward. It'll be live streamed or you can come in person. There's pretty limited attendance in deference to COVID. I'm going to be recording a fireside chat for the Knight Foundation's Lessons from the First Internet Ages. That'll go at uh, November 2nd and 3rd. And I've recorded a keynote for Seagull, CGL. 2021, which is going out November 5th and 6th. So that's all that's coming up in the next couple of weeks. I have been continuing to work on the next Martin Hench novel. That's my new series that Tor has just bought three books from me on. Uh, The first one is done. This is the second one. The book's called Picks and Shovels, and it's a historic novel about the heroic era of the PC and an affinity scam involving a computer company called the three wise men run by a mormon bishop an orthodox rabbi and a catholic priest who are horribly corrupt and uh, exploiting their faith groups and i just kind of hit the stride in the novel i wrote a long prologue that ends up i think just being notes to myself it's twenty thousand words long and i think three thousand words of it will survive but it really kind of clarified the book for me and now i'm working on chapter one and the action's just like roaring along so that's very exciting doing a thousand words a day and not having any trouble with that. So this week's reading is last week's medium column. It's called Dead Letters, and it's about uh, monopolization, email, federation, the spam wars, and uh, my own platform, pluralistic, and kind of what it means to have our infrastructure turn into choke points. As you'll hear, I wrote this column after my systems administrator, Ken Snyder, who has maintained all my infrastructure for many years, wrote to me and said, you know, maybe we just need to, like, abandon running your own newsletter server, your own mailing list server, because all of the email infrastructure blocks our server because we host it independently, even though there's no spam on it. And that was kind of a come-to-Jesus moment for me. So without further ado, from October of 2021, here is Dead Letters from doctoro.medium.com Dead letters. Email could be the last federated internet technology, but it isn't. It feels like only yesterday that we were living through the Substack bubble as mailing lists enjoyed a new renaissance, rebranded as newsletters, a tangible expression of the tech lash and our collective disgust with the platforms and their attempts to enclose the internet and convert it to five giant websites, each filled with screenshots of text from the other four. In the abstract, mailing lists or newsletters represent the promise of a return to a Jeffersonian internet 
where each of us can garden our own little patch, not subject to the whims of third parties. This, after all, is the original design brief for the internet, to be an end-to-end network where any party can connect to any other party without needing permission from anyone else. That's the promise of newsletters. The reality is a lot messier and more alarming. In early 2020, I left Boing Boing, a website I wrote on for 19 years, helping to build up a media platform that was not reliant on social media platforms for its audience, which isn't to say that we are fully insulated from big text choices. Periodic algorithmic changes at Google could have a huge effect on our reach and fortunes. The reason for leaving were complicated, but ultimately, it was time. I'd done one thing for 19 years. Now, I wanted to do something else. That something else is pluralistic. A blog that publishes in daily-ish editions, consisting of between one and ten articles, ranging from brief blog mentions to two to three thousand word essays. Pluralistic doesn't have a couple of decades worth of readership behind it, so I set about to find ways to reach readers that wouldn't make me a digital sharecropper inside someone's paywall, with an archive that could be vanished in an instant if a company kicked me off, or went bankrupt, or sold out, or pivoted. Ugh. The strategy I embraced is called Posse, Post Own Site, Syndicate Everywhere. A Posse publication has an official, canonical home on a server of the author's control, but everything that appears on that permalink site is also published simultaneously on other platforms to reach readers where they live. For me, that means publishing the canonical day's edition on a self-hosted WordPress blog on a server that my friend and sysadmin Ken Snyder runs in Iraq at Torix a giant, systemically important Toronto data centre where the world's major backbone lines all cross over. Readers of my fiction may recognise Torix as the backdrop for my story when sysadmins ruled the earth. This same edition is mirrored in near real-time to a Twitter feed and a Mastodon feed, reformatted as threads, a Tumblr feed, a Medium feed, a Discourse feed, a full-text RSS feed, and a newsletter. Though I have some Python scripts that help with this syndication, it's still a lot of manual work. The reason for all this complexity and manual work is that I want Pluralistic to accomplish two contradictory goals. First, to spread as widely as possible, and second, to be my own publication, independent of corporate control and the risks of corporate incompetence, malevolence, or indifference. I could build a large following by focusing on just one platform and optimizing for it, but then if the platform terminated my account, my ability to publish and be read would disappear in an instant. The idea, then, is to publish all of my work on a variety of platforms, owned by a variety of corporate masters of varying degrees of competence, beneficence, and conscientiousness, but to always be directing readers to the platforms I control, the blog, its RSS feed, and its newsletter. I host that newsletter myself because I can, and because hosting on someone else's mailing list platform, Google Groups, Substack, Ghost, Tiny Letter, MailChimp, etc., exposes me to the risk of sudden termination, and exposes my readers to the risk of breach and privacy invasion. Hosting your own mailing list used to be a common activity, but the growth of corporate mailing list platforms, starting with ancient pioneers like Yahoo Groups, gradually siphoned off the demand for standalone mailing list software. Today, the only major actively maintained free and open mailing list manager is the Hori Mailman, which has slipped behind the commercial offerings in flexibility and sophistication, but which still does the job. 
Ken hosts a mailman instance for me on his server as well, connected to his mail server, which is where I get my personal email for drocrapound.com, an email address I've maintained for some 25 years now. Mailman may be unpolished and retro, but it fills my needs very well. Namely, it's made it easier for thousands of people to sign up to get my daily newsletter, which I deliver to them using infrastructure I control. The daily editions are free from any tracking or ads. None of that creepy stuff that lets owners of commercial newsletters tell whether or not you've opened a message in your own mailbox. Seriously, who the hell thought that this was an acceptable idea? But the notion of newsletters as an end-to-end self-hosted alternative to a big tech share crop is more theoretical than practical. It turns out that even if you have the wherewithal to stand up and secure an email server and a mailman server on fast hardware in a leading data center, you may still need to cede control to a commercial newsletter host. Each week, I get a flood of messages from mailman telling me about the users whose subscriptions have been automatically cancelled because their own email providers have rejected too many of my messages as suspected spam. That's a circuit breaker built into Mailman. If you keep sending messages that a remote server classifies as spam, your whole mail server can be added to one of the internet-wide black holes, block lists of servers accused of providing aid and comfort to spammers. The majority of the world's mail servers subscribe to these block lists, and woe betide you if your own mail server ends up on one of these lists because you will be cut off from the rest of the world, maybe permanently. But my newsletter isn't spam. Mailman uses a double opt-in verification system. To subscribe, you have to fill in and submit a form, then you have to click a link in a verification email. Everyone who subscribes to my newsletter took an active step to join it, and then confirmed that intent by taking a second active step. What's more, my mail server doesn't send spam. Ken provides email to a handful of close friends, old internet people like me, and none of us send out spam, nor have we ever. Nevertheless, my newsletter editions keep getting blocked. For example, Comcast blocked all my messages for weeks because they subscribed to Vade's block list and Vade was misclassifying mailman's confirmation emails as spam. That is, if you took steps to prevent spam, Vail would call you a spammer and block all your email for all of its customers, which include millions of Comcast subscribers. This is a neat little example of the problems of email concentration multiplied by the problems of automated email classification. The once diverse world of email hosting, millions of similarly sized email hosts, and a handful of large institutional providers serving companies, universities, and governments, has been denuded, with a couple of giant commercial providers dominating corporate paid-for services and a couple more giant free webmail providers. This concentration means that the communications of tens of millions of people are dependent on the invisible, inscrutable, and inexplicable decisions of the administrators for a small coterie of giant firms. This would be bad enough, but those administrators themselves no longer even make the decisions about what to block and what to let through. Instead, they outsource these choices to another hyper-concentrated group of spam-fighting services. Companies like Vade use automated algorithmic filtering to misidentify emails, while real-time block lists have a combination of public and secret heuristics for deciding which servers should be blocked from the internet altogether. And because these decisions, algorithmic and human, can disrupt communications for millions of people, the individuals with the power to hear petitions and unblock a server or reverse an algorithmic judgment are overwhelmed and insulate themselves from the majority of complaints 
many of which, after all, come from actual spammers hoping to win back their right to spam. Which leaves anyone running their own mail server, with or without a newsletter that relies on it, in a situation of great precarity. I mentioned that I've been sending and receiving emails at drocrapon.com for a quarter century, but there was a three-year period in which I could not send messages to anyone who relied on AT&T for their email. AT&T and the hundreds of local ISPs it gobbled up and put under its corporate management treated all mail from my mail server, which had never ever sent a single spam, as spam. Every month for three years, I sent fresh petitions to AT&T's email management team and never heard back. A loud Twitter campaign eventually got the company's attention, but that hardly scales. My newsletter hit a fresh peak of automated unsubscriptions earlier this month, and after investigating, Ken emailed me, more discouraged than I've ever known him to be. He had discovered that one of the largest free email hosts, with more than a billion users, had been automatically marking all of my newsletter messages at spam, apparently because I'd taken two weeks off from publishing while recovering from hip replacement surgery. The gap and the restart triggered some algorithmic tripwire, and without any human intervention or oversight, I was now cut off from thousands of my subscribers, each of whom had performed an elaborate double opt-in to request and verify their subscriptions. Ken wrote, I think it may be time to consider a commercial mail host for the pluralist mailing lists. These aren't things that I can configure or protect against. These are almost certainly heuristics that, as a small mail host, we are never going to escape. I only imagine that this is going to get worse over time. The fact that I have a long history online means that I'm in the top 0.0001% of people situated to solve these problems on their own. That free webmail provider, I know someone who's pretty senior there, and that person got their colleagues to manually exempt my server from future blocking. In theory, I can do this for all of the major mail providers, one at a time, and cross my fingers. I assume that's how the proprietors of successful standalone mailing lists manage. Internet pioneer Dave Farber has run his interesting people list since 1993. Its readership are a who's who of respected internet technology figures, the kinds of people who might intervene on Dave's behalf if he gets blocked by a bad algorithm or a spurious black hole accusation. And he's also hosted by SecLists, which is operated by and for the internet security community, the sort of people with after-hours unlisted numbers for the on-duty manager of every data center in the world. With a lot of work, I might just be able to continue to host my own newsletter and email. Maybe but almost no one else can. Instead, they'll pay for access to, quote, email infrastructure. This infrastructure isn't technical. Ken's setup and hosting are equivalent to these companies' back ends. It's commercial. These email providers have commercial relationships with the administrators of the world's consolidated mail hosting companies and the spam detection services that sell to them. And they have staff whose job is to keep up with and participate in the committees that oversee the real-time black holes. When the spam wars began, and network administrators banded together to block bad email servers that allowed or facilitated spam, open internet advocates predicted that any victories they won against spammers would be short-lived. Those open internet people were right. Today, it's harder than ever to send legitimate email unless you can convince, that is, pay, a handful of titans to relay your communications. And spam continues apace. I get literally hundreds of PR pitches every day, almost all of them sent by publicists who host mailing lists on MailChimp. I've never signed up for these lists, and I never verified my subscription to them. PR professionals buy 
quote, press mailing lists from sloppy vendors, then indiscriminately spam everyone on those lists with whatever harebrained crap they're hoping to publicize today. MailChimp will let me unsubscribe from these lists, one at a time, but they won't let me block PR companies from adding me to future lists, and they won't show me all the lists I'm subscribed to. By any objective standard, MailChimp is a commercial mass-scale spam facilitator, and I'm not. But MailChimp is a major mail provider, and if they get blocked, they get unblocked quickly. If AT&T started bouncing MailChimp messages, it wouldn't take them three years to get someone at Ma Bell to remove the block. Large companies have been trying to enclose the open internet forever. Facebook wants to absorb the parts of the web it can and banish the rest. Spotify is removing podcasts from the open ecosystem and locking them inside its walled garden. And it's reinvented payola for streaming music by replacing albums, which artists and labels control, and are the same whether you're on Spotify or iTunes or just in your MP3 player, with playlists that are exclusive to the service, which you can't bring with you when you quit. These technical matters, how mail servers are configured, the appeals process for black holes, the nature of large companies' anti-spam algorithms, are niggling, abstract, and obscure. But when we talk about digital sharecropping, about the ways that creative workers are corralled into making money for giant companies beholden to their ongoing largesse, these are the mechanisms that allow that to happen. Well, thank you all. I'm going to go see if I can watch my kid yet, or at least just set up a folding chair outside so I'm not just trapped in the car. It's a little sweaty in here. I really appreciate your tuning in again, and I'll talk to you next week. You've been listening to the Cory Doctor Podcast, licensed under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike US 3.0. Or as Woody Guthrie put it in another context, this song is copyrighted in the US under seal of copyright 154085 for a period of 28 years, and anyone caught singing it without our permission will be a mighty good friend of ours, because we don't give a dern. Publish it, write it, sing it, swing to it, yodel it, we wrote it, that's all we wanted to do. Many thanks to John Taylor Williams for mastering. That's Rynex Studio, W-R-Y-N-E-C-K Studio at gmail.com. John Taylor Williams is a full-time self-employed audio engineer, producer, composer, and sound designer. In his free time, he makes beer, jewelry, odd musical instruments, and furniture. He likes to meditate, to read, and to cook. Talk to you next week.